Yeah, thanks, Jenny. My name is Johnny. It's um, I always love these together Sundays. It's genuinely just so lovely to come and see whole church family from across all the three sites. It does obviously mean that I kind of come and looking at new faces and thinking, well, I felt like I was part of Grace Church for a reasonable amount of time, and I feel like I only know about half the people in the room. So if I don't know you, hello. My name is Johnny slash Jonathan. Call me what you like, as long as it's polite. I'm married to Karis. We've got two um, young children. And I actually, I don't know whether anyone else has, has got this, but I'm actually fulfilling a little bit of Grace Church bingo. So um, we live in Chichester, right? And we go to the Haven't site, but I work as a secondary school RE teacher in Bognor Regis. So that means that between all three sites, I've got the full house. Just, does anyone else got that? No? I'm going to take that, all right? I'm going to get a little badge that's going to say, Johnny, full house of Grace Church bingo. So there we go. Um, summer holidays, because I'm an honorary teacher, spending a lot of time around the house. This morning we are continuing our series, Stories Jesus Told. Um, Jesus, in the gospel, spends a lot of time teaching. And often when he teaches, he uses parables, which are like short, snappy stories, which just illustrate the kind of point that he's trying to make. And the parable that we are in this morning, you can find in Luke 16, verse 19 to 31, and it is the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Now, trying to work out what this parable, you might know the parable, you might not, we're going to read it together, so if you don't know, it's fine. But trying to work out what this parable is about can sometimes be a little bit confusing because there's all kinds of things going on, as we'll see in a moment. But actually, the key to working out what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable is by actually just looking at Luke chapter 16, the whole chapter as a whole. And Luke chapter 16 starts with another parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, which is a parable about money. And in the middle, there's a little interchange that he has with a group of people called the Pharisees, and that interchange is about money. And then the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we find at the end of the chapter, believe it or not, is also about money. It's always funny, like when we start talking about money, money can be either, depending on our income or perhaps the way we were raised, something we think about a lot, something we don't really think about. Um, Money is all around us. This morning, when I'm talking about money, I'm kind of going to be using money, wealth, riches, treasure, all kind of interchangeably, which the Bible does as well. I'm not just talking about kind of the number of pounds or not pounds in our bank account, but everything that we have that could be called like our wealth. So that includes our, the money in our bank, it includes the home or the, the flat in which we live, it includes all of our possessions and our furniture, it includes our, our car and perhaps insurance that we've got. Wealth for us can also include things like the, the roads on which we drive, the fact that we come to church, if you're at the Chichester site in a wonderful building like this, the fact that our health care, when we get sick, we can go and, and get it free largely on the NHS, even if we do have to wait for it. But money is a big theme in the Bible. If we were going to ask ourselves, why does Jesus and why does the Bible talk so much about money? It's because money is such a a part of our lives. We live and breathe money, even when we don't consciously think about it. I've been enjoying watching um, the World Cup. I'm going to listen. We're visiting my um, my parents-in-law after this, so we're going to listen to much of the second half as we can on the radio on the way up there. We're going old school. But whenever you're watching like World Cup games on ITV, it's impossible to escape all of the advertising. And why is there so much advertising? It's because companies know that we are, we're suckers for it. They can just show us the kind of things that we want, and we're ready to part with our money to buy the things that they want to show us. Um, 
Money also can have just a really big pull on our heart. So a 2015 study by The Guardian found that money is the top cause of anxiety and that increases for those between 18 to 34. So actually the younger you are, the more likely statistically you are to be anxious about money. We know kind of that money isn't the place that we should look to for happiness. So we know phrases like, no one gets to the end of their life and says, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office making more money, etc. And yet, we, we love it, don't we? We'd rather have more money than less money, and we'd rather have lots of nice stuff rather than lots of less nice stuff. Um, my wife, Kara, she's just finished reading a book by a woman called Marie Kondo. You might have heard of She's a, a Japanese lady. She's written a couple of books. The first one um, is called The, the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying which is quite a title, isn't it? I didn't know that tidying could be life-changing, but I think there's definitely something there. And the second book, which Karis has just read, is called Spark Joy. And actually, we are, lots of us, so wealthy that we don't even think just about our money or the possessions that we have, but we think about our homes and the way we're going to set out all of our lovely possessions and the things we have. Um, one thing you probably ought to know about me is that I, I love books. I love to read books. My um, favorite place on the Chichester High Street, for those of you who know it, is the Oxfam Secondhand Bookshop. I could spend an awful lot of time in there, a lot of time taking the kids in and just letting them look around at the books in the buggy while I just have a peruse among the shelves. Here's the thing. Jesus does not want us to be too attached to our money. Okay, Money, as we'll see in a sec, is not good or bad really in itself. The thing which makes money a problem is our hearts because we have got a tendency to be blind to just the wealth that we have blind to the pull that money has in us, blind to shopping and the, and the emotions that it can cause in us. And I think it's important before we start looking at what Jesus says that money is a problem if you are a Christian too, right? This is not just the love of money. It's not just something which happens to people who don't know Jesus, right? Money, the love of money, I would assume if I was going to take everyone in this room and say, who has a problem with idolizing money or loving their possessions too much? And I would say that's pretty much all of us. All right. Just because you give money to Grace Church or you tithe or give your 10% or however much it is, that does not mean that you don't have a problem with money. Because actually there's an interchange just before this in Luke 16 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says this. He says, no one, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then it says this, the Pharisees who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Okay, tithing, giving money to Christ's church, does not mean that you don't have a problem with money because you know who tithed? The Pharisees. And boy, did they tithe. Jesus, at one point, is talking to the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Right? These guys loved tithing so much that they tithe their herbs and spices. Okay, now probably that's not the level of extent that we have with our tithing, okay? But they loved tithing. They tithe their herbs, their spices, their cumin. And yet Jesus also says in Matthew 23 to them, inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside and you're dead on the inside. Now, Jesus loves us a whole lot. And because Jesus loves us, he really cares about the things that we give our heart to. He cares about what we love, what we don't love, what we try to keep at a distance, what we pull in close. And the thing is, for us this morning, I want us to check our hearts and go, right, well, with my money or lack of it, with my possessions, with my home or my car, where is my heart at? 
Is Jesus the first love in my life this morning? And I think if we were going to summarize from this passage, what has Jesus got to teach us about wealth? We could summarize it like this. He would say, don't settle for earthly treasures. All right? Don't settle for loving and devoting your life to earning more money, to making your house nicer and nicer, to have a better looking car. Don't settle for earthly treasure when Jesus gives us himself as the perfect treasure. All right, this morning is not about just getting rid of all our money and going to be hermits living in some cave somewhere. All right, it's about learning to put our money in its right place and put Jesus first in our hearts and in our lives. So let's read the passage together. We're going to go from verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell Um, from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to cool the tip of his finger, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And the rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Strong parable. Can we just pray together? Why don't you pray with me? Father, we are praying and asking that as we open your word this morning, you would give us the Holy Spirit. It is our desire to see more of you. We don't want to be loving anything above you because we know that is, does not glorify you and that is not for our good either. So we just pray that as I speak and open your word that you would just be stirring our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that each of us would be walking out of here this morning more in love with you, more captivated by you more wanting to follow you and put you first in our lives, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, don't settle for earthly treasure when Jesus gives us himself as perfect treasure. First of all, here's where I want to go. I'm going to break down that kind of passage into, into two bits. First of all, we're going, well, what's, what are the things to watch out for with our earthly riches, with our money, with our possessions? And then I want to paint this picture of how Jesus shows himself to us as, as the perfect treasure, as true riches, and then want to ask, well, what does that mean for the way that as Christians we spend our money and what do we do with it? And so first, don't settle for earthly treasure. I think there are five things which Jesus wants to teach us, at least five things, about wealth in this passage, things that we have got to look out for, all right? And the first thing is this, earthly riches, money, possessions, nice cars, a nice house, it attracts us. It is attractive. You could say it's captivating. It draws us in. So verse 19 starts, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So Jesus starts the parable and we immediately got this, this wealthy guy. 
All right, so this is a guy who is dressed in lovely clothes, purple and fine linen. That is, that is some nice gear. He's got lovely trainers, and he has a really nice coat and all kinds of lovely clothes in his house. It says he lived in luxury every, every day. This guy does not want for anything. The ESV puts it, he feasted sumptuously. He's got lovely food. He enjoys this food every day. He's probably got loads of friends coming around to his house, and they're all eating this lovely food and enjoying the luxury of his house. We know that, um, we know that he's, he's super rich as well because his house has actually got a walls and a gate. We know that he's got a gate because Lazarus, the poor man, sits at the gate as well. So he's got all of this security around him as well. Now, it's important that we, we note this to start off because Jesus, as we've seen a few verses earlier, is talking to the Pharisees and we know that they love money. It's in 2,000 years ago, the rich man, although he doesn't exist, just in a parable, he's in a story, and the Pharisees, who did exist, and all kinds of people 2,000 years ago, right, they were attracted to their wealth, and they loved it, and things have not changed in the last 2,000 years, all right? Even more so for us, because our wealth, the wealth that we enjoy, is, is so much more. If you were going to take yourself and you were going to say, did you want to be the richest person in the world at the time of Jesus, or do you want to have your current standard of living here, you're probably going to choose your current standard of living here. Right, back then, there's no NHS, there's no internet, there's no social media. If you need to go somewhere, you get on like a donkey or something, and you travel there. You don't get in, and get in your Kia or Toyota or whatever you drive, or even a bus. Okay? There's no buses to take you there either. It's important that we note this, okay? because actually we have got an automatic pull towards our money and towards our finances. Um, it's important to note that money is, like, as I said, is not bad or wrong in itself. Okay? Money, possessions, these are just things, aren't they? But actually, we've got to recognize that our heart has got like an unhealthy pull towards these things. I, um, I used to play on the PlayStation 1. Put your hand up if you had a PlayStation 1. Great, lovely to see you guys. Not very many of you, actually. Maybe you had kids who had PlayStations 1, some of you. Um, but there used to be a game that we used to play with my brothers. I've got two brothers of a similar age called Crash Bash. Right, it was Crash Bandicoot, for those of you who know Crash Bandicoot. And it was like the best game ever. Like, still, I can hear the theme music in my head, and I want to text my brothers and say, why don't we just take a whole weekend and just play Crash Bash all the time? All right, but there was this game that used to play on Crash Bash, just picture this, right, where you had to ride polar bears, and you're on this kind of wedge of ice in the middle of like, this frozen Arctic ocean. And then basically, the aim of the game is you ride your polar bear, and then you have to charge into other people on their polar bears and knock them into the water. And it's last... I don't know, what is Crash Bad? He's a fox? Last fox or whatever standing wins. But the thing is, you, you have to be quite clever with it because you couldn't just stand still. All right? So if you stand still, you just start drifting and then you're going to end up in like a little hole or a seal is going to come out of the ocean and eat you, something like that. Now, the similar is true, bear with me, similar is true with our hearts, right? Our hearts don't just stand still. They naturally gravitate towards things around us. And so if we are not consciously coming to our hearts and saying, right, well, how are we loving money? Are we getting too caught up with the things that we have? Am I putting too much emphasis on how much I earn to give myself my status? Then actually we can expect that our hearts will naturally be drifting across the ice and falling in love with the things that we have. We can ask, like, what is it about wealth that makes it so attractive? Why for people, as long as people have been alive, why do they want money? Why do they want a nice house? Why do they want nice books and a nice TV and a comfy sofa to sit on and a nice bed? A few things. One, I think wealth gives us status. 
right? So this guy, he's got a lovely house, and as was normal at that kind of time, he probably would have had people over for banquets, and they would have come into his house and seen what a lovely house he'd got, and they would have feasted sumptuously on all of these luxurious foods that he's got, and they probably would have looked at him, and he would have got this feeling of like, I'm a pretty decent guy. I've got my life quite nice together. These people come and they're like, wow, I love your house. You've got such a tidy house. You have such nice scented candles and lovely pictures on the walls. And I love your car parked outside as well. And so it gives him that feeling of, hey, I'm a pretty decent guy. You can give us the same as well, right? We look around our house and we go, yeah, I quite like the person that I am. Sure, I'll have people over and they can compliment me on the things that I have and my lovely carpet and chandelier. Trying desperately to think of more things that people have in their houses. Um, Probably not a chandelier. I think another thing that wealth gives us is is comfort, right? So it is like a natural human um, aspiration, isn't it? To reduce our pain and to try to increase our comfort, right? That is just, that's as normal for human beings as it really is. We don't naturally, just by ourselves, look all the time to say, well, yes, I want to make life as painful and uncomfortable and choose a, a prickly old thorn bush for a bed, right? We just want to make our lives easy. And wealth does that for us, doesn't it? If we're earning more money, if we've got nice sofas and nice things around our house, then life gets more comfortable. And so we have this feeling of ease and we're like, oh, I like it. It's lovely that if I'm sick, I can just go and buy some paracetamol and and I can have access to all this medication which will help me. Um, Other thing that it does for us as well is it gives us security. So this guy with his house, he's not Lazarus, the beggar just outside the gate who's who's sick and got all this can't even get any food, but he's got this, this wall around his house and a gate. He's safe, he's secure, and money does the same for us, right? If we've ever had to wonder, or we do wonder, like, how am I going to get the money for this month's rent, then we know the anxiety, the pain that not having enough money can cause, right? And actually, if we don't have to consistently think, where is my money coming from so I can pay my rent or my mortgage? Where is my money coming from so I can feed my kids? Then actually, well, Praise God, okay? But it's also a feeling that we want, isn't it? We want to feel safe, and money gives us that feeling of I'm safe, I'm secure, I know that I can manage. So we need to watch out. We need to beware that money, our hearts are not neutral with it. I was reading a a little biography of a guy called William Wilberforce this week. He lived in the 18th and 19th centuries. He was a British MP, and he was basically played like a really significant role in ending the, um, the transatlantic slave trade and, and slavery across the British Empire by 1833. He literally died like three days after the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Just campaigned it for, like, against it for his whole life at a time where people were not interested. People did not care about ending this and he kept coming back and coming back to it. And he read something, said something that I thought was so interesting. He said that, that our possessions in themselves are not a bad thing but he said that due to the infirmity of our hearts or due to like the sickness, the sin in our hearts, they should be treated as highly dangerous possessions. And I wonder like, what perspective change it would give of us. So we started looking at our things and said, actually, these, are not th- these things around my home are not necessarily my friends, that they could be highly dangerous possessions. That potentially, second thing we've got to watch out for, secondly, are numbing us. All right, if we go to verse... Um, verse 20, it says, At the rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. I think that money has for us and comfort has for us a numbing effect. All right? It numbs us in two ways. It numbs us to the needs of others and it numbs us to our own need. 
All right? Firstly, to the needs of others. We've got this, this guy, Lazarus. He sits at the rich man's gate every single day. He is terribly hungry. He longs to just to, to have the scraps, the leftovers, like the stuff they put in the bin from all of these luxurious feasts that the rich man is having. And he's craving that. This is how hungry he is. He's, he's so sick. He's got these sores all over his body. He just sits kind of like as this, this pathetic creature almost at this gate day after day, day after day, hoping that one day things are going to get better and they don't. The rich man, though, knows him, all right? We know that he knows him because from hell in just a minute, he's going to say, oh, Abraham, could you send Lazarus to go and get me some water for my tongue so I can be cooled down, right? So he knows the guy, but he, he does nothing for him. How is it that he can ignore the need at his gate? Well, presumably because he's become so comfortable that he just chooses to ignore it because he can. He doesn't need to worry about the needs of other people. He doesn't need to worry about the poor on his doorstep, the needy in his city or town, because he's well enough off. All right, just to show how crazy the, this numbness has made the rich man, even the dogs, it says, even the dogs come and lick Lazarus's sores. Even the dogs look at Lazarus and have this empathy and compassion for this poor beggar at his gate. I wonder in what ways our wealth and our comfort that many of us will enjoy might have numbed us to the needs of people in our local areas and around the world. I think we tend to think of our level of wealth and think, this is, hey, that's pretty normal. Hey, lots of people that I know live like this or have got nicer cars or bigger houses. And we've got to realize, right, that our wealth is absolutely crazy compared to every other point in human history, right? That living in the south of England, one of the most affluent, and I realize I'm saying this, okay, not everyone here is in the same boat, but living in the south of England, one of the most affluent areas of the UK, so we live in one of the most affluent areas in one of the most affluent countries in the world at one of the most affluent times in the whole of human history, We've got to realize that actually the level of wealth we enjoy is, is completely crazy. It's unlike anything else that we've seen before at any other time. It numbs us to the needs of other people, and it also numbs us to our own need, right? Because when we've got money, we kind of start to think, hey, this money, I, I earned it. I worked for it. I got it. Actually, this was money that I worked hard for. I went to uni and I, and I did my time and now I'm reaping the benefits. And I worked so hard in order to get my extra qualifications and get that pay rise. I worked hard to get this business started from the scratch. Do you know how hard I worked in order to get this money? And so we start to think, hey, I, I can look after myself. All right, all of this money. We don't feel the same conscious needs of, oh, well, actually, you know, I'm, I've, I've got a cold and I can just get paracetamol. We don't really need to think as much as much about our, our health or about the comfort of our homes or where our food's coming from. And so it kind of starts to think, hey, I'm, I'm okay. I'm sorted. Now, that's incredibly dangerous because if we start thinking that we don't have need, that we're going to start distancing ourselves from God, as we'll come back to in a sec. So earthly riches, they attract us, they numb us, And eventually, they're going to abandon us. Verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. All right, you might, uh, following the World Cup, if you think back to the 2010 World Cup, Men's World Cup in South Africa, for those of you who, um, who follow football or watched it, basically, in the run-up to the, the World Cup in South Africa, there came out a film produced by the BBC called Africa United, which some of you might have seen. I remember watching it. Um, now, basically, Africa United centers 
around this kind of small group of Rwandan children, um, including the main character, Dudu. And so he's got like, his friends and family. And basically what they are doing is they are trying to get to Soccer City in Johannesburg in South Africa to watch like, the big launch of the World Cup. And so they travel from Rwanda to South Africa for all these different means. And basically, at one point, they tried to get some money by getting themselves tested for HIV. And so they get some money in return for this. And basically, what Dudu does is he takes this money, and there's a clip of him talking to this guy by a river. And basically, Dudu comes back over, and he's got this briefcase which is full of banknotes. And he thinks that he's made this tremendous deal. And so he's suddenly got them a load of wealth and riches. And then basically what he's done is he's taken their money, which was in Zambian kwacha, and he's traded them for Zimbabwean dollars. And what he doesn't know is that the year before, the Zimbabwean dollars have actually superinflated and gone defunct. And so basically they're just pieces of paper in his briefcase. And so he gets told off by his sister, and then basically all the money ends up in the river, and it just floats off and goes down Victoria Falls. And so all of this immense wealth that he thought he had is suddenly gone. He doesn't have it. Same thing happens when we die. All right, we've got all this wealth, we enjoy our time, um, kind of building up all of these possessions for ourselves, and then we get to the point where, like the rich man, we die, and actually the money and the wealth that we had is not ours to enjoy anymore, and it goes on to someone else. Now, that might be oversimplifying it, whereas we can leave it to children, we can donate it to good causes, we enjoy it while we have it. But actually, we've got to see that if we give our lives to purely building up money and building up comfort for ourselves, it's going to leave us one day. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Okay, money is a bad investment to make. So money, it abandons us. And listen, if it's our God, if we put all of our trust and our love in money, then it will condemn us. And so we've got this interchange where the rich man goes to hell after he's died. Um, And he basically then starts talking to Abraham and he says, listen, Abraham, will you send Lazarus because I'm in agony and I'm in torment. Would you send him to get some water just to to cool my tongue and help me out? Um, And Abraham says, no, a, a great chasm has been set between us so that we can't come to you, you can't come to us, you're, you're stuck there. And you're actually getting the things that you deserve from your life. You've got to realize that we don't really feel that comfortable often even as Christians talking about hell. It's probably one of the, uh, probably the biggest beliefs in Christianity that even Christians or, or people who are skeptical towards Christianity would say, no, I just don't get on board with that. I think we've got to think that, one, that, that is potentially a sign of our affluence, Right, That if we don't often think, if we think, well, that, hell, that seems so unreasonable, it might be because we've not experienced the kind of poverty that puts us you know, at, at greater risk of, of sexual exploitation or financial exploitation or unfair trade or modern slavery. And if we're actually, we've experienced those things, we're probably much more likely to think that the idea of a hell is actually a good idea rather than a bad one. All right? So we've got to realize that it's part of just our, our upbringing, potentially a sign of our affluence, that we don't like this idea. We've got to realize as well that if money is our God, then what we've done is we've committed the sin of saying, actually, God, you created me, you give me life and breath and everything. Actually, I'm not interested in you anymore. I'm just interested in what you can give me. I'm just interested in your money. In Jeremiah 2, God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, 
and have dung their own cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And he says, like, what is people in Jeremiah have, have done two sins. They've, they've said, God, I'm not interested in you, all right? You're the fountain of living water, but I'm not interested. And actually, what I want is my, my little dirty puddle over here. And so what we do is if we give our whole life over to loving money, we're saying to God, God, I'm not interested in you, the fountain of, of life and living the waters, the one who gives me life and breath, and actually I'd rather have my, my money. That's the thing I'm going to be enjoying. And actually, if money is our God, the money will eventually condemn us. Most importantly, most dangerously, money has got the potential to blind us to the greatest treasure. So at the end, there's this interchange where um, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he says, No, Father Abraham. He said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So these are guys who are presumably Jewish because the rich man is saying Father Abraham, who is presumably they were like religious guys. But actually they've read Moses and the prophets. They've read their Bible the whole life. And actually they don't know Jesus. All right. And so he says, well, listen, you know, they're not going to pay attention to anything in the Bible. All right. They think it's silly. All right. But listen, if you could like resurrect Lazarus for me and you could send Lazarus to go and see them, I'm pretty sure they'd believe in you then. And he says, listen, that's not the way it works. Right, if the Bible's not enough for you, then even if someone rises from the dead, then you are just going to ignore them. What's the reason for that? It's because they're blind to Jesus. It's because their love is so set on their money that actually Jesus is someone that they are not interested in. Like what were the Pharisees doing earlier in the passage? And it says that the Pharisees who loved money were sneering at Jesus. Actually, I think we will find that the more that we gravitate towards and love our money and our things and the security that they give us, the more we will find that Jesus is not someone we really want in our lives. That is ultimately the most dangerous thing about wealth. It's got the potential to say, money is what I want. I want to live for all of these nice things and have all these nice things around me. But actually, Jesus, I'm not interested in. Devoting our life to loving and building up for wealth for ourselves is, is fool's gold. It looks like amazing treasure, but actually, when push comes to shove, it will let us down and show itself worthless. The good thing, though, is that all through this passage, we've got Jesus showing us that he is our perfect treasure, all right? That we've not got to say, yeah, money, I'm just going to try and earn it and enjoy it while I can, and then I'm just going to die, and then that'll be that. But actually, we've got an amazing offer from Jesus to enjoy him as the perfect treasure. All through the Bible, right, Jesus is shown to be true and, and better things. So he's the true and better high priest. He's the true and better shepherd. He's the true and better friend, the true and better king. And listen, Jesus is true riches, all right? Everything in money that attracts us and makes us happy and we want to aspire to and have with money is only perfected and made better in Jesus. So listen, gold or our cash is valuable, it has worth, but Jesus is the one who we're going to sing forever. It says in Revelations 4, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So gold has worth, Jesus is fully worthy. 
Or money is how we access all of these temporary joys and pleasures on earth. But Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. All of the joy that we can get from our cash is just a glimpse of all the joy that we can have in God. Money gives us a feeling of security, right? But Jesus is the one who in John 10 says, I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The feeling of safety and security that money gives us is just a shadow or a glimpse of the safety and the security that Jesus gives us. The thing that we have then got to do is just come to him in our need. And for this, our model is Lazarus. Right, so Lazarus, his, uh, incredible fact, right? In all of the parables of Jesus, there is only ever one person, apart from Abraham, but I think he's a real person, so he doesn't count. And you know, one person, character that Jesus talks about in his stories that has a name, all right? And that's Lazarus. What does that tell us? That tells us that Lazarus's name is significant. It's important. It's not something that Jesus normally does. Lazarus's name means the one whom God helps, the one whom God helps. Now we could ask ourselves, why is Lazarus then the person, the kind of person that God wants to help? We've got to say, first of all, because he's, he's materially poor. All through the Bible, we see that God's heart beats for those who are poor, marginalized, oppressed. God is called the father of the fatherless, defender of widows. He is the one who sides with the people who are most marginalized and vulnerable and lowly in society at a time where kings were people who sided with the richest and the most successful. Actually, it's the materially poor that God cares about and has a special place in his heart for. But actually, Lazarus is supposed to show us um, that we are supposed to be like poor in spirit, all right? When we recognize that we are like Lazarus, that we have not got anything to bring to the table, that we are not these successful people that we think we are, then actually that is when Jesus starts to look so attractive. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who know that they have not got it all together, people who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, those are the kind of people who are going to enjoy spending time with Jesus. There's a little phrase sometimes that... um, that Christians and even non-Christians can say, God helps those who help themselves. And it's probably like some little way that you can wangle it to make that true in some regards. But generally, no. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who recognize that they are utterly helpless. All right? If you've got a feeling this morning that you are keenly aware of your weakness, of your lack, of your need, if you're aware this morning that you are not the one who is fully in control of your life, things feel out of control, and you are just like, God, I do not know what to do, then you are in a great place, all right? Because Jesus invites us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is the one criteria that God puts on us before we come to Jesus? It is, you have nothing to bring, all right? You only have to receive Jesus, And on the flip side, if you are not really aware of your need this morning, if you kind of feel like, Jesus, I'm not really interested, and I'm kind of here because that's what I do, actually, that's a place where we really need to look at our heart and say, something has taken the place of Jesus in our lives. We can come to Jesus in need as the perfect treasure, and then all we receive from Jesus is just true riches. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross for us. He is the one who bears the wrath of God so that we don't then go to hell and bear God's wrath and the fire and the torment and agony. But Jesus is the one who bears it on the cross for us so that we can enjoy with Lazarus the comfort of heaven. He takes the agony of hell so that we can have the luxury of the time with our Father. Um, He's the one who removes the chasm. So when Abraham says to 
um, the rich man, no, there's a great chasm that has come between us and you, so you can't come to us, you're eternally separated from God. Well, Jesus is the one who takes the separation from God so that we can enjoy intimacy with our heavenly Father. Jesus then gives us new resurrection life. Abraham says, um, oh no, the rich man says, like, but if someone who is raised from the dead, then they'll believe, right? Jesus is the one who is raised to life, and then we are united with him so we can have new life in him. And then he gives us all of these new blessings and gifts when we put our faith in him. So Ephesians, the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, so in our lives, we are not going to experience every material blessing. Okay, we have got no assurance of having lots of money and of having perfectly good health all the time and having a great car and loads of success and people thinking we're great. But we do have the assurance that right now, if our faith is in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Spiritual blessings like a place in the family of our Father. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. It says, Lazarus, where is he when he goes to heaven? Well, he is standing at Abraham's side. Now, if you're a Jew reading that, you recognize that is a place of immense privilege. Okay? If you were sitting with these kind of such important people, you were clearly being high privileged and blessed. And that is where Lazarus is. Now, listen, we're not just standing in heaven at Abraham's side, but we have got a place in the family of our father. We call him Abba Father. We can literally come to him, as Jenny was saying last week, at any time and bring to him our cares and our needs. So much of the time, we are just so reluctant to bring our cares to God. Like, we are so apathetic when we come to pray. That's because we think God's not interested, or will it really do anything? And yet God is the one saying, you know, you have every reason to come into my presence and speak to me. Amazing true riches that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives us the true riches of his Holy Spirit, which he gives to us to live into us, to help us, to, to convict us when we're going astray, to guide us, to, to say with our hearts that we are children of God. And we could, a final true rich is, Jesus assures for us all of our future good, right? It says um, in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. For those of us who have put our trust in God, we've got the assurance that God in whatever is going on in our lives is always working good for us. We then got to ask the question, well, how do I, how do I get this? How do I enjoy this? And we just, it's just trust in Jesus. It's just saying, Jesus, I don't want earthly riches. I want you. I put my trust in you. I say that you are the one who gives me my status in your family. You are the one who gives me ultimate security. You are the one who gives me ultimate joy and pleasure and delight. So don't settle for earthly riches, but enjoy Jesus who gives himself as the perfect treasure. I just want to finish last couple of minutes by thinking, well, what do we then do with our money? All right, so if we've got all of this assurance of Jesus in the gospel, then what then happens to our cash? What then happens to all of our nice things? And the answer, I get this from John Piper, is that we use our earthly treasure to show that Jesus is our perfect treasure, our true treasure. All right, so we use money in a way that shows that money is not the thing that we live for, but rather Jesus is. A couple of ideas about how we do that. We enjoy earthly riches as a gift. Enjoy earthly riches as a gift. There's kind of two parts of that. One, we take everything that we've got, however much money there is in our bank account, whatever car we have, our home, our flat, 
everything in it. We take that and we say, thank you, God, for this gift. Right? There is, is nothing that we have in our homes that we ultimately deserve or worked for or earned. It is all just gifts from our God. If we look around and go, like, who am I to live in such a, a wonderful part of the world and to enjoy free health care on the NHS and to have generally very lovely roads compared to lots of the roads in, in the rest of the world? I know that sometimes we can be aggrieved about them. And we just say it's all a gift from God, and so we should enjoy it. We should say that actually... All of this has come from God, and so it's not wrong for us to say, well, I'm going to enjoy the things that God has given me, all right? I don't want any kids like coming up to me crying after the service saying, Johnny, we were going to go for McDonald's afterwards, and then basically because you preach, we're not allowed McDonald's ever again because it's a bad use of our money, right? That's not it. We can enjoy money, okay? We can enjoy the things that God has given us because we say, thank you, Father, for these gifts. But secondly, we have to be on our guard. We always have to be like checking our heart, like, Right, well, is money becoming my main goal? Okay, is the comfort of my home numbing me to wanting to be on on mission for God and talking to my non-Christian friends about Jesus? Remember the crash bash illustration, right? So if we are thinking that we're just staying still, we're drifting towards putting our trust in other things. We don't drift towards God, we drift the other way. Just a couple of quick thoughts. Wait before making purchases, right? It's so easy if you've got the, like, the Amazon app, for us to just go onto Amazon, decide that we want something, buy it, and have it delivered to our door the next day, and it's got a little smile to say, hey, isn't your life great? Amazon has come. Um, yeah. It's worth just taking a day, right? I often say, Karis might come up to me and say, listen, can we, can we get this? I feel like that we, we need this. And I often say, like, yeah, that's fine, but let's get it tomorrow. Because if you just, that makes me sound super wise. I'm not super wise, right? Karis does the same to me as well, okay? It works both ways. Um, but actually, just by taking a day, we can often think like, well, as I was just getting pulled into it, okay? We also notice our heart. I said that I really like buying books. There's times where I've, some of you, your eyes are glazing over, right? You're like, Johnny, you are, there's something wrong with you, right? But I go into Oxfam Bookshop, and there's times where I've seen like, like four or five books that I'd really love to buy. Now, I can, I can get away with taking one home, okay? Two are a push if I'm kind of subtle about it, and I have good reasons why I think these books deserve to take up bookshelf space in our home, right? But there's times where I've got five books that I think, oh, which one? And you start getting like the, you know, the shivers. You start getting a little bit, you kind of, this, this sweat. So which ones am I going to go for, all right? What if I get these two? Is there somewhere I can get more money and so I can try and get this one? What if I go home and say, I'll get rid of five other books. Can we just get this one, all right? I would say that if we're getting that feeling around things that we're buying, it's probably not all that healthy. I definitely have a problem with buying books, by the way, okay? That is a definite area that I know there's something not quite right there. Um, yeah. It's, it's worth thinking, do we take our things too seriously? It's, it's good to want to keep things nice, but actually if we're just afraid of having people in our home or if we get cross with our children when they start you know, playing with things that they're not supposed to because we're they're going to break, have we just got too much of a pull to our earthly possession? Do we just need to kind of cut it a bit of slack and say, right, okay, that book used to have a cover, it no longer has a cover, that's okay, I'm all right with that. Finally... No joke, I sometimes take pencils and write in my books often, like if I'm reading something that I want to think about. And so sometimes I'll be sitting next to particularly my eldest who will then turn and say, well, can I write in your book? 
<laughs> then it's like, a, well, I know that I'm writing in it. And so a couple of times we've taken the opportunity and, hey, there's some books that have got some pretty nice scribbles in. And I'm expecting that I'll look back on them and think, hey, yeah, that was a sign that books were getting put right back in the right place. Last one. Be a conduit and not a cul-de-sac. Okay, I got that from John Piper as well. That wasn't me. Okay, a conduit. I'm pretty sure that's this thing, and water goes through it. Okay, that's the key thing. Some of you know all about conduits. I do not. I just know things go through them. Cul-de-sacs, however, they are little bits of housing and and areas, aren't they, where you, you end up there and there's nowhere to go. All right? If God is putting a whole load of good things in your life, be a conduit, okay, something that God gives you gifts and they pass through to other people that you know, and not a cul-de-sac, they just remain with you. All right? Um, In Acts 20, Paul says, In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. This is crazy. Okay, what a crazy sentence to be in the Bible. It is more blessed to give than to receive. As in, it is better to give away your money, to give away your things, to give away your time, okay, than for you to keep those things for yourselves. All right? If you want the true path to joy and happiness in life, there we go. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, a couple of ideas about how we do this. We freely give our, our money, right? So that might be one way we do that is by giving regularly to, to Grace Church, if Grace Church is our church, okay? And not just going like, oh, well, I'll give my 10%, okay? Because that's what I should do as a good Christian. Because as we said, the Pharisees did that and they hated Jesus, okay? You don't want to be that person, do you? Okay, so you want to say, look at your money and say, actually, what am I cheerfully willing to give? What am I able to give that kind of gives me a feeling of a little bit sick? Like, this feels like a, quite a big amount of money that could make my life a whole lot easier, but also gives me the excitement of, hey, I am trusting God and saying it is better for me to give this money away than for it to sit in my bank account or sit in my home as a nice, comfy bed. We should also freely give our our things. Let's be ready and willing. We've got a particular hobby to say, well, actually, that hobby is not just going to remain with me, but I'm going to share it. All right, you come to my house and you have a look at this thing, or why don't I just let you borrow it? Or actually, do we really need it? Why don't I give it away? And also freely give ourselves. Show hospitality. Romans 12 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We should all be ready to have people in, like, in our homes and around our homes. And some of us get pretty anxious and worried about that. Okay? It doesn't always have to look the same. It's not just that we're having people over and it's got to be a whole th- you know, eight-course meal okay, every time that we have friends around. But we should be willing to have open our space. If we've got a home that we love to care about and make nice and we want it to look good, great. Let's have people in there so that they can enjoy and share in it as well. Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. And that means that our giving is supposed to be happy. We're supposed to enjoy it. Right? There's supposed to be something nice about it. We kind of get the thrill of being generous with our finances in the way that Jesus has been generous with us. Why don't we stand? We're going to come and just sing um, one last song together. Jesus loves us, and so he doesn't want us to be people who settle for earthly treasure but rather he wants us to be people who enjoy the gift of him as the perfect treasure. We are so attracted to our wealth and to our money and our luxuries, but would you imagine if we were a church who just enjoyed God's grace so much that we just wanted to give and be generous? If people came to Grace Church in Bognor Haven or Chichester on a Sunday morning and they saw this is a generous church, this is a church that loves to give and be hospitable, 
And I just want to offer up the opportunity at the end of the meeting this morning um, for as many of us as would like to be prayed for. All right? Because actually, as we're doing the kind of things, there's all kinds of ways in which our hearts go towards the things that we have. And actually, for lots of us, we might be recognizing, yeah, I know I do realize that I get too caught up in shopping or in my money. And I want Jesus to be my greatest love. Perhaps you feel like you've lost your first love, like Jesus is not the king of your heart. Why don't you come and get prayed for? Or you just feel like, Jesus, yeah, I feel in a good place, but I just want more of you. I just want to enjoy more of your presence in your life. That is something which all of us, right, including like elders even, right, that is the thing which we all need in our lives. We all need more of Jesus. Everything in culture says that money and stuff is the key to our joy, but we are no fools to give what we cannot keep, to gain what we can't lose, to say, Jesus, I want you above everything else in my life.